0: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production.
1: If it feels like you've heard more about labor action over the past several months than you have in recent
2: years, well, you'd be correct. Thousands of public service workers are walking off the job after mediated talks with the federal government and the union collapsed. A province-wide strike at schools is set for this Friday. The Ford government introduced legislation here at Queen's Park today to stop a strike, but the Union for Support Staff Workers says they'll defy the law and walk out anyway. It came with great sadness that we came to this crossroads, but we had no choice. It's been more than a week since thousands of workers at BC's ports, including the one in Vancouver, walked off the job. Business insiders say the longer the strike goes on, the more likely you'll feel the impact.
1: Since the world emerged from pandemic lockdowns in 2021, the numbers show an increase in labour actions across the country. And anecdotally, it seems that union sentiment is at a high not seen in years. What's behind the recent push for better deals? How do we quantify the number and duration of strikes anyway? And as we see more and more of them, will it lead to real gains in employment conditions not seen in decades? Or a hard pushback from employers trying to regain the upper hand? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. Stephanie Ross is an associate professor in the School of Labor Studies at McMaster University. Hello, Dr.
2: Ross. Hi, Jordan. How are you?
1: I'm doing very well. Um, This is a summer, uh, a year maybe even of labor discontent. Is that fair to say?
2: It's very fair to say. It's not just a year. It's several years of labor discontent that's been rising since 2021. And it's not just happening in Canada. Uh, It's happening south of the border and it's happening in Europe. You know, it seems like the labor movement has really re-embraced the strike as a way to make gains for workers. And we're seeing it all over the economy.
1: Have we woken up a sleeping dragon or am I exaggerating now?
2: (laughs) Well, I don't know about that. I mean, for sure, like the labor movement is a very powerful force in society.
1: But had been dormant for decades? Am I wrong?
2: Well, I think that there have certainly been conditions that have made it much harder for the labor movement to use the strike as a tool to make advances for workers. There's no question about that. If we go back to, you know, the 1980s and 90s, where, you know, the processes of globalization really began to accelerate, especially in private sector manufacturing, which used to be a very highly unionized sector, right? Mm -hmm. The threat of job loss, Having jobs move overseas or to, you know, to move to places where labor was perhaps more compliant or the laws were more repressive meant that, you know, many workers in their unions were afraid to use the strike because, you know, you might be giving your employer a reason to pack up and move somewhere else. And so there's no question that in the private sector, there's been conditions that have really made striking more difficult. And so through the 90s and 2000s, we did not see the level of strike activity that we had seen in Canada in the 1970s and what seems to be in some ways returning in a way after the pandemic. Uh, I mean, I'd add that, you know, there are conditions in the public sector, too, that have made it difficult for workers to strike. And that has to do with the way that governments in Canada have tended to intervene in public sector strikes using back-to-work legislation and other kinds of wage repression legislation to interfere with public sector collective bargaining and sort of made going on strike potentially very costly for those unions, even if they had a lot of bargaining power. Often what we've seen is that when public sector workers are in a good position to make gains, the government puts their finger on the scale and tips it back into their favor with their legislative power. Okay, well,
1: that brings us up to what's going on right now. And I'm glad you ended with it, because speaking of government sort of intervening in in labor action, for those who don't live there and aren't impacted, so maybe haven't been paying attention, can you explain the sort of on and off strike at BC ports right now? What's happening there?
2: Yeah, I mean, the BC port strike is really important because it's having major ripple effects throughout the Canadian economy, right? Other manufacturers in central Canada, consumers are dependent on the flow of goods and parts in and out of that port. And I say it's a good example of how some workers have a lot of leverage in their bargaining right now, right? And so they're they're taking advantage of their key position in the economy, dock workers are, to try to make gains. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was a strike. People were picketing the port. The federal government attempted to assist to get to agreement by appointing a federal mediator, a mediated Tentative agreement was arrived at. But, you know, the key word in that phrase is tentative. Mm-hmm. And I expect that, you know, when the tentative agreement was reached, the union pulled down the picket lines as a sign of good faith. But, you know, the union has an internal democratic process to put a tentative agreement to a wider group of representatives. And that group said, this agreement's not good enough for our members. So they rejected the agreement. And Because they understood themselves to be on strike until an agreement was formally signed and accepted, they restarted their picket lines. Right. The Canadian Industrial Relations Board declared that return to strike activity illegal. Huh. You know, a legal strike doesn't end because there are no picket lines. It ends when a new agreement is signed. And the CIRB decision and the interventions of the Minister of Labor indicate in some ways an impatience with unions' internal decision-making processes, right? The assumption was that the tentative agreement was a done deal. Mm -hmm. But what the longshoremen are saying is that the members and their representatives have a right to have a say on it.
1: Well, listen, I'm not a labor expert, but I mean, the one thing that I thought I understood about strikes was that you come to a tentative deal and then the union votes whether or not to ratify it. Like, I'm a a teenager in the 1990s in Ontario, so uh, I remember this well from my teachers.
2: Sure. I mean, that is one way that many unions make decisions. But, you know, some unions have internal structures that... Empower representatives to be like the parliament of the union. And so in the ILWU, they have a council that has the right in their constitution to make decisions about tentative agreements. It's true that for a final ratification, all the members need to vote. And that is indeed what's happening now. The union seeing maybe the tea leaves and that the federal government is not going to tolerate a continued strike unless they know that the members support their leaders' rejection of this deal. Members are now voting on this tentative agreement. And so we'll see if the members think that it's good enough or whether they agree with their leaders who rejected the tentative agreement that it's not good enough.
1: So this is the most recent example of a labor action. Uh, we also... Did an episode just last week about the dual Hollywood strikes, obviously American, but impacting people worldwide. For sure. Um, You mentioned this really started to surge in 2021. Can you just sort of walk us through a few of the uh, high profile Canadian examples that illustrate this?
2: Sure. I mean, I think probably most people recall that in the spring of 2023, we had a Nationwide strike of federal government workers, the Public Service Alliance of Canada, you know, who had not been on strike since the late 1990s. So that was a really important and high profile strike in the fall of 2022 in Ontario. Education workers represented by CUPE were on strike. So that was another province wide strike. Construction workers were on strike in Ontario last summer. Those are, I think, some of the most attended to high-profile actions that that consumed a lot of people's attention. But then I would add to that a whole host of negotiations that have gone down to the wire, like WestJet pilots, metro grocery store workers in the greater Toronto area, where strikes were averted at the 11th hour. But, you know, those rounds of negotiation were characterized by extremely high-participation strike votes In the case of the metro grocery store workers, 100% of the members voting in favor of a strike before Mm -hmm. negotiations even started. And WestJet pilots had well over 90% participation with high 90s uh, in favor of striking. So we've been paying very close attention to the question of the labor movement and of the strike as a tool because of these very high profile instances where Few people could really ignore what was going on because probably most everyone was touched by those some of those strikes in the last year, two years. When we
1: talk about uh, a surge or even just a reemergence of labor action or strike threats or even unionization, can we quantify that? How do we do that?
2: For sure. Um, Statistics Canada keeps track and keeps data on the incidence of strikes. So, for instance, in 2019, before the pandemic, there were lots of strikes, about 128 in Canada, but there were much smaller workplaces involved in those strikes, and those strikes didn't last as long. And in 2020, we only saw 66 strikes in Canada. Compare that to 2021, we saw 186 strikes. Last year, 175 strikes. And this year, we're only at the halfway mark. We've already seen 99 strikes. And if we look at person days lost, so, you know, the number of strikes times the number of people times the duration of a strike, you know, we're getting in the range of 2 million person days lost to strikes. That sounds big. And certainly it's more person days lost than in the last number of years if we look at the last five years. But if we look at a longer period of time, in the 1970s, Canada had strikes to the tune of 12 million person days lost. Wow. The strike activity in the 1970s in Canada was much, much higher than that that we're experiencing now, even though in recent times, two million person days lost in a year is quite a lot, and it's certainly an uptick.
1: You touched on this at the very beginning, but maybe if you could point to a few factors that are driving this renewed willingness to strike.
2: In terms of the short-term pressures or conditions, I think we're looking at a lot of pent-up frustration from the pandemic, where people went to work in lots of sectors, public and private, under conditions that were very difficult and very risky where they also were asked to sacrifice quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think that coming back out of the pandemic to the extent that we are, that people feel like their sacrifices now need to be acknowledged and rewarded in some important way. Right. So I think that's one factor. I think that combined with that is inflation and the inflationary pressures are definitely driving what we sometimes call catch-up militancy, because inflation eats away at people's real wages. So, you know, historically, say in the last 10 years, if you're getting like a 2% wage increase per year, which was actually considered quite good in lots of previous collective agreements, it's not going to cut it when inflation is 6 7 8% per year. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, people are fighting against a real wage cut Right. And then I think the other factor is the conditions of labor shortage. There are fewer workers either available or willing to work in certain sectors. There are a whole bunch of conditions that are creating pressures, especially in those parts of the economy that really relied on low wages. Mm-hmm. And that creates excellent conditions for workers to exert their power. If there's a condition of labor shortage, it means that employers have less capacity to replace you. And that's a key factor in deciding whether or not withdrawing your labor is going to work. And then I think the witnessing of like record profits made by certain employers is also creating a subjective experience of the last five years. That make people feel like enough is enough, yeah, that especially in particular sectors that like grocery stores, you know, even in the port uh, strike, we're talking about employers that have made record profits over the last several years, you know, there's a lot of profit taking that in fact is driving inflation, but it also reflects like the unequal pain and unequal gain coming out of the pandemic. and I think that is definitely driving people's militancy.
1: What are the conditions required for this to be an actual resurgence where the labor movement can keep building over years? I presume a number of things have to go right for that to happen.
2: I think one question I have about how sustainable this wave of labor action is going to be is whether or not unions, in Canada anyway, will take advantage to organize more workers into unions. Right. That question of whether or not unionization will spread will, I think, determine whether or not the labor movement emerges stronger because, you know, Canada's unionization rate has been stable for the last 20, 30 years at around 30% of workers in the economy who are in unions. But in the private sector, it has really collapsed. Like that that overall healthy union density masks the fact that it's really kept up by a very highly unionized public sector. And in the private sector, especially in the growth industries like in private retail and uh services, unionization is remains quite low. And so we're not going to really be able to I think sustain and spread the benefits of this wave of labor action as far as they could and should go, unless we also see the spread of unionization. I think that it is a problem for industries to rely on low wages to be competitive. And one major way to transform those low wage and difficult jobs into better jobs is through unionization. It
1: feels like from what I see and hear, the younger generations, the younger millennials and Gen Z are much more militant about this stuff. And maybe it's the rising inequality or whatever it is, but certainly in a way that like my Generation X, older millennial generation is not. Does that contribute to this? And is that the kind of sustainable change that we need to see to keep that drive going?
2: For sure. I think that Gen Z is much more pro-union than previous generations. They're much more pro-collective action. And they are also less tolerant of a situation where they are living to work and they prioritize things outside of the workplace to a far greater extent. And, you know, that has an interesting effect in terms of making them much less tolerant of bad treatment and bad conditions, you know, this is a generation who is almost utterly cut out of the prospect of home ownership, mm-hmm. and and that's not even to talk about the way that the idea of, you know, climate catastrophe shapes their sense of the future versus the present, mm-hmm. right? Like, I think there's a way in which baby boomers and Gen X. We're part of a a society that that had hope and that if you worked hard, you would it would pay off in the future. Right. But there's a there's a lot of pessimism about the future. And that creates a different attitude towards the present and about what kind of living and working conditions we're willing to tolerate in the present. If this is our only life, we're going to fight for something better. And I think that does reflect Gen Z's attitude.
1: The last thing I want to ask you about, and I'm really glad we've talked about this from the perspective of the worker for most of it, is the perspective from management and specifically how militant they'll be willing to be and how hard they'll fight back. And I ask this because um a, a big story coming out of the Hollywood strikes were some of the executives saying, "You know, they're hoping to drag this on until people start losing their homes. Mm-hmm. And how far will management be willing to go to crack down on this rising
2: movement? Well, I mean, I think, It all depends on what their alternative options are, right? If management believes that they can achieve their goals by breaking a strike, they have lots of wealth or they have potential technological solutions to these labor shortages, which I think is how we should understand the rise of artificial intelligence in various industries. If they believe that they have the capacity to wait people out and to eventually use technology to reduce their reliance on this scarce and more expensive labor, then, yeah, they're more likely to be willing to go to the wall. But, you know, in the short run, there are good reasons to think that many employers are going to have to sign deals that they might not otherwise. In Canada, it's interesting because even though, yes, the Industrial Relations Board came forward with a declaration that that strike was illegal and, you know, some talk about back to work legislation was circulating, you know, we have some Supreme Court decisions from 2015 that indicate that, you know, striking is a a constitutionally protected right for workers in Canada. And so it does put some limits on what employers can expect In terms of the forms of power that they can access. So, if they have to make deals to get their businesses moving, they will. But these things are never one and done, right? Mm -hmm. As deals are made, we can rest assured that management will continue to explore ways to not get in this situation again, that they will try to explore ways to reorganize their workplaces, to Break the back of certain skilled jobs uh, that are hard to replace and replace it with other forms of work organization or technology so that they're not in this situation again. And so this is a very dynamic and fluid story because in the short run, we might see employers having to make deals that they might not otherwise want to because they don't have many alternatives But in the long run, they're going to be trying to figure out how not to get in this situation again. And the question is, what will citizens, workers and governments do to shape those responses? Will we say as a society that, hey, it's actually good that people are striking to improve wages and working conditions. It's actually a good thing that unions have found more confidence that it's actually a good thing to see more wages in the hands of people rather than, you know, profits sitting in bank accounts. Hmm. And if people start to realize that unions play a fundamental role in redistributing wealth, then maybe we can start to see we have to line up behind them and defend them when those attacks eventually come.
1: It will be fascinating to watch over the next several months. Dr. Ross, thank you so much for this.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Dr. Stephanie Ross, Associate Professor in the School of Labor Studies at McMaster University. If you'd like more, including a previous episode that Dr. Ross mentioned, where she basically all but predicted the union comeback in the post-COVID landscape, you can head to the thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can just search Dr. Stephanie Ross. And of course, all our other episodes are on there too. If you have an idea for an episode, you know by now that we would love to hear from you. The ways to do that are by finding us on Twitter at the Big story FPN, by emailing us at hello at TheBigStoryPodcast.ca, or picking up the phone and lodging a complaint or praise or whatever you have for us. That number is 416-935-5935. Joseph Fish is the lead producer of The Big Story. Robin Simon is a producer as well. Stephanie Phillips is our showrunner. Sound design this week was handled by Robin Edgar, Christy Chan, and our main man, Ryan Clark. And I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk Monday. In
0: 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show.